Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. I have a, a great deal of wisdom and have considered things deeply from the scriptures and we'll be able to help each other more as we uh, try to learn and think about the story of David and as was prayed, the significance of the stories of the life of David and what it means to us. I would like to start with this, uh, and, and there's a purpose to this, I think. Uh, I'd like to just start, whenever someone says King David, what's the first thing that you associate with that? What is it that comes to your mind? What do you consider whenever you think about the life, the story, the name, David? A man after God's own heart. All right, the easy answer is to get taken quickly, so you've got to jump in fast if you want to. But that's a big one, right? The reason why it's easy is because it's so prevalent, it's so important, it's so fundamental uh, to David's story. We're going to come back to that in a second. Keep going. Tell me more things about David. Whenever you think about his person, his story, his significance in God's work throughout history, what do you think about with David? Sorry? Relatable, and what, what do you mean relatable? Good. Sure. I think that's right. Yeah, it's a, and part of that is how much information we have about David. We know so much about his story, and it's easy to connect with him and to see him in a very realistic sort of way. I think I saw a hand over here somewhere, and then I'll come back over here, here, and then here, and then there. Go ahead. Yes. This is one of the biggest things. This was prayed about a moment ago, but throughout the prophets, the prophets will just, they'll say things like, one will come to rule on David's throne or something like that. But actually in Ezekiel, it's just said this way, my servant David will come, which must have been a shock. David had been dead for hundreds of years by that time. David's going to come. I think the people then would have understood. And of course, what we understand now is there was, that was a description that Jesus' uh, life and person is so deeply intertwined with David's that the spirit would just say, David will come in reference to Christ. He's a type of Christ. Here and then there, and then I think I saw some over here. Go ahead. Uh, keep it going. Some of the passages that all of us go to when we're in trouble, when we're struggling, when we need some help, where we turn to are passages from the Psalms that were written by David uh, through the Spirit's guidance. This man has helped so many of us directly through his not only relatable story but also through the words that he penned uh, in the Psalms. And that's great. Go ahead. Okay. So the relatability factor, there's also uh, there's an aspirational nature of David. There's things we look at, we're like, yeah, that sounds and looks like me. And then there's ways he behaves, you're like, wow, I need to behave like that in, in his response to his sins in particular. I think Keith, did you have something back here? Oh, that's great. Sorry. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
And perhaps that's why in the New Testament, whenever the New Testament writers are being guided by the Spirit to reveal the gospel and to explain its significance, so often what they would do is they wouldn't just come up with new stuff. It wasn't new material. I mean, a lot of the writings of the New Testament are like Bible studies on the Psalms, essentially. I mean, that's what the book of Hebrews is one big Bible study on Psalm 110. That's what it is, the whole thing, a divine one. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to diminish it at all. But it's coming from this passage of David and helping us understand uh, the human condition and how we're supposed to respond to God. All right, great. Look, pound for pound, there's not very many characters in the Bible story that we have more pages uh, devoted to than David, that uh, there's stories that are more resonant with the things that we experience and the things that we're aspiring to do and to be. God. And so we're going to be spending some time to really uh, unpack a lot of the things that have been shared just now as we think about David. Actually, here in Acts 13, the passage that I ask you to turn to is a sermon. Uh, I think we can say, if I'm, unless I'm missing one or forgetting one, this is the first sermon we have recorded of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were in a synagogue and they were invited to speak. They were sitting there and uh, the leader of the synagogue said, hey, if, if you brothers would like to say anything, please do. And so they get up and they tell the story of Israel. They, they tell the story. And really the point of this, of this sermon, the different sermons and Acts all have a little different flavor. The real message of this sermon is that God has been faithful. All the things that he did, all the things that he said throughout history, he has been faithful to those in Jesus Christ. Of course, a lot of the Jews thought, Paul, you're a heretic for saying that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the Son of God and that all nations can come to God through him. That's heresy. That's pretty much what the whole book of Romans is addressing. And Paul's argument is, no, no, no. I'm not saying that God's been unfaithful to all his promises, like he's doing a brand new thing. He just threw out all the promises of old and started over with Jesus. No, I'm telling you, he has been faithful through Jesus Christ. That's the point of this sermon in general. But of the stories that uh, make up the story of God's faithfulness throughout history, the one that Paul features the most is the story of David. And he tells us some important things that actually are sort of just a way to recap and encapsulate uh, the things that were already mentioned here. If you look in verse 22 of Acts chapter 13, it says, After he, that is God, had removed him, that is King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Uh, so a couple of things I want to note here uh, from, from the, the text uh, in, this, in this passage. The thing that was mentioned right off the top is the thing we're, we're going to be focusing on for the next few days. What an incredible, it's not a compliment, it's more than a compliment, uh, uh, affirmation, commentary on your character. God says, David is a man after my heart. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what all to say about this. It's one of those things, when you say it, you're like, oh yeah, man after God's heart, got it, and you move on. But when you really say, what does that even mean, to be a, a person after God's heart? Perhaps what it means is, is that uh, you're, you're chasing after God's heart. The heart of God is what you want, and, and whatever God thinks in his will, that's what you want to become your will, and that's what you're pursuing. That's what we're going to see in the story of David. He was a man after God's heart. Maybe another way to, to think about this would be that uh, a person after God's heart is a person who has a heart that God looks at with favor and says, that's what I'm looking for. That's the kind of 
heart and spirit and attitude and mentality and life that I'm looking for. Maybe it's kind of a mixture of both of those things. That a person after God's heart is someone who, in their heart, is desiring God's heart more than all things. And whatever it is God wants and whatever it is God wants me to be, that's what I'm pursuing. And God then looks on those people with favor. This is uh, really the goal that all of us should have throughout our lives, that we would be people that God would look at and say, that's a person after my heart. That's not the only thing that the text says. Notice it also says uh, that he is one who will do all my will. Now, this one's a little tricky because, of course, a lot of David's story, as was mentioned, is him doing things that were uh, expressly against God's will. So on one level, perhaps the point is, hey, I'm going to use this man to accomplish my will. I think, that's, I think that's true. But it says he will do all my will. He will do all my will. Uh, this is a statement of obedience, submission, commitment to God. That's what we learn in the story of David. And certainly, wouldn't you love it for God to say that about you? That you show up there on Judgment Day, and actually even long before Judgment Day, God says of you, this is a person after my heart who will do all my will. Uh, skip down to verse 36. There's something else that I love. I love this statement in verse 36 about David. Uh, by the way, he, he goes through quoting some of those Psalms of David to talk about Jesus and the gospel. And in verse 36, he says, going back to David, uh, and of course, actually his point is that Jesus is greater than David. That's actually the point. But for our purposes, as we're entering into this study for the next couple of days, I want us to know what he says about David. He says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. He died. Of course, Jesus is greater because he didn't. But what a statement to have made about you. David served the purpose of God in his own generation. I don't know if people uh, put quotes on tomb tombstones anymore. I think you just put your name and your date, and then you're pretty much done. But if you had a tombstone thing, this is as good as it gets on a tombstone. What was this person's life? He served the purpose of God in his generation. He understood what God wanted him to do. He did it, and he served the purpose of God in his generation. Uh, so we've got three special things about David. He's a man after God's own heart, did all God's will, served the purpose of God in his generation. One more thing I want us to say, and these are kind of overarching thoughts to help us as we enter into our, our thoughts for the next couple of days. Back in verse 23, all the things that David was and all the things that he did, being a man after God's own heart, doing all God's will, serving the purpose of God in his generation, was to bring about a Savior, Christ. We might say it this way, he was one of the more significant signposts throughout history pointing people to Jesus. And once again, what more are we supposed to be in our lives? We're not just hanging around here trying to fight off the devil till we die and go to heaven. That's not our story. That's not what God's doing in our lives. Otherwise, uh, God could have just saved us the second we were baptized and teleported us to heaven. We're done. You fought off the devil. You trusted in Jesus. Now you're done. No, no, God's left us here so that we would be signs pointing to Jesus, that we would uh, bring about a Savior into people's lives, that they would know him through us, even as David uh, made Christ known and brought him uh, into people's lives. Man after God's own heart, who did all his will, serving the purpose of God to bring about a Savior into the world. Uh, we have a lot to learn from the life of David and a lot of beautiful things from him.
course, uh, you read this, you're like, whoa, what a guy. And in your mind, whenever you picture David, what is the picture that you have? But don't answer that. Just think about it for yourself. Because if you say your picture, you're going to mess up everybody else's picture. But think about it. Uh, and now I'm going to mess up your picture. I'm just going to be the only one to mess it up. You know, a lot of times, probably what we envision are some of the, the big moments in David's life. You know, slaying the giant, which we're going to talk about right now, actually. Um, but even that, he's kind of toned and muscular. He's a kid, but a muscular kid, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, then you keep on moving, and he's a warrior, killing hundreds of Philistines, going out. Even when he's on the run, he's got the, you know, the face paint, a guerrilla warfare type thing as he's in the cage, you know what I mean? Maybe that's not, but you know what I'm saying. We picture him as this warrior because, of course, a lot of his story is him fighting battles and all that stuff. Or even we see him in his bad moments where he's committing grown-up, big-boy sins. You know? But that's not where David's story began. That's not the... Uh, the root and the foundation of all these beautiful things that the Lord said about him. Uh, the story of David begins with a little boy king. That's what he is. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, I'd like us to think about how, as, as we uh, begin, what's the, the basis for all these things that grew in the life of David. This quote about him being a man after God's own heart, that's found in 1 Samuel 13. And, and here's the context. Let's, let's go ahead and set the context. This is actually pretty important as we think about David. David emerged out of the period of the judges. So let's get a couple of comments, perspectives, ideas, memories. When you think about the period of the judges, what sort of defines that period in Bible history? What were things like in the nation of Israel during the period of the judges? What, what's going on with the judges? Sorry? Chaos. Tell us more. Yes. I, I heard someone describe the book of Judges as divine propaganda, which I thought was great. Because of that line at the end, as, as, as was mentioned, three times in the last little sort of uh, epilogue to the book in those last few chapters, it specifically mentioned there's no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most horrifying sections of Scripture. We don't ever read it publicly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe you did last Sunday. I don't know. But usually we don't. And, and, it's, it's just, and, and we should, by the way. We should. Because it's important to see what happens. I remember one time I was in a Bible study with, uh, it was some middle school guys, and we were reading this, and uh, I actually told the parents, I said, hey, I want to talk to you all beforehand, because there's some pretty gruesome stories here, so I'm going to teach it, but I, I'm willing for us to kind of negotiate how we're going to go about this, because I don't want to uh, scar anybody. So we talked about it, we figured out how we were going to navigate it, all right, great. And as we did it, I was telling the stories there at the end, and one of the kids looked at me and said, wait a second, are we still in a Bible story right now? Because I was just telling it. I wasn't reading it straight off the page. I was telling the story. That's how bad it was. It was chaos uh, in the most destructive way possible. Tell me more about the period of the judges. Um, so there's no king in Israel. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. Absolute chaos and devastation. Please. Yes, in a bad direction. Uh, sort of just a spiral. They're just going down the toilet in, in this period, right? They kind of do good for a while, but then they turn away from God, turn to idols, and then they are sad because God punished them for it, and then they cry, but then they're just right back in it. There's no real forward momentum at all with the people. Other thoughts about the period of the judges, please. Yeah. Yeah. 
And the problem being, these people were worshiping other gods. So here, God's people are just blending right in with this idolatrous, worldly mentality, right? Yes. Absolutely. It's almost like God's shouting out to them, hey, stop doing things that are right in your own eyes. Hey, let me be your king. Trust in me. Look to me, and we could fix this whole thing. But they didn't. They didn't. Now, the, the, the book of Judges leads right in uh, through the book of Ruth, uh, which is significant, and I think we'll mention something about that in a second, and into the beginning of, of 1 Samuel, which is still the period of the Judges. And what was going on then is, is they, they say, hey, you know what? We know what our problem is. We do need a king. What the kind of king we want is one like the other nations. So God gave them a king like the other nations. By the way, it wasn't bad for them to want a king. Actually, in the law, God had specifically prophesied there would be a king, and they would have kings, so it wasn't necessarily wrong to want a king. The problem was they wanted a king like the other nations. So God gave them one. He was tall, good for going to war and whatnot, handsome, all that sort of thing. But pretty soon, Saul became the opposite of what they needed. Um, and he actually brought more oppression and more devastation to the people than any kind of uh, relief. So then David comes along. Now, I want to note something with you actually in the book of First Samuel. So First and Second Samuel originally were one unit. And the reason I point that out and the significance of that is that there's a message throughout the book of Samuel that the story of David uh, brings light to in the most profound way of all the stories, I think, throughout Look at 1 Samuel, I told you chapter 16, I'm sorry. Let's go to chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2. Uh, this is actually predates David. This is when Samuel, the, the great prophet and the last judge, uh, was coming onto the scene. Now, Samuel's mother was not able to have children, and she was uh, abused by her rival wife, the woman that was also married to their husband. People were just doing what was right in their own eyes, remember. And... Um, and so if she, she finally has a child. And here's her reflections after she has a child. By the way, as we read this, you're going to note this sounds very similar to the song prayer that Jesus' mother Mary prays in Luke chapter 1. But I want you to listen and imagine you were sitting there next to Hannah. And what is it that she's saying in this prayer, in this sort of poem, in this sort of song prayer that she prays? What is on her mind the most? What's she thinking about? What's, uh, yeah, what's going on? 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. 
The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. So far, we're just, she's talking about the power of God, which I'll tell you, for a lady that's had a baby, this is kind of weird kind of language, right? This is not a nursery rhyme kind of thing. People being crushed, God makes people poor and mighty and all this kind of stuff. What, what's the point? Who is it that God brings low? Who is it that he exalts? Verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered, and against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Do you hear what the theme is of Hannah's prayer here? What she had come to recognize through uh, her experience with being barren and being put down by this other woman who was having children, all that sort of thing, what she uh, recognized and what I think we can say the Spirit of God led her to prophesy about really was how what God does is bring down the mighty and lift up the lowly. And I know this isn't some sort of revelatory thing. You're like, duh, we've been going to church. We sing the songs. We know. But this is really important, guys, because while we know it, we can forget it whenever we get out there because this is the message that's exact opposite to everything in the world. Uh, now, I told you this is important for all the book of Samuel. There's three poems in, at least uh, there's three and a half, I guess we say, we say four, but three uh, key poems that emphasize this theme throughout the book of Samuel. There's this one. And then about halfway through the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1, after David and, uh, excuse me, after Saul and Jonathan are slain, David laments their death. And the, the chorus of that song is, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. Same theme as Hannah. Maybe Hannah's prayer emphasizes a little more the exaltation of the lowly and the poor and the needy, but David laments how the mighty have fallen. And, of course, that's really what the story of Saul illustrates. If you think you're powerful and big and strong and tall and handsome and all that stuff, you're going to be brought low. And then there's one more at the end of uh, the book of Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is pretty much a copy and paste of Psalm 18. And there's the same message in that one, that God lifts up the afflicted, 2 uh, 2 Samuel 22 uh, 22 and verse 28 says. He lifts up the lowly. He lifts up the humble, as some translations say it. This is the theme. And then there's lots of stories all throughout the book of Samuel that honestly seem a little strange. You're like, I don't know why we needed this one. It's very interesting. I like it, but I don't know why we needed it to understand David's rule. For instance, the story of Abigail. You ever thought about that? 1 Samuel 25. Why do we have the story of Abigail? I mean, great lady. I like her. But why did we need that? When you think about all the other stories that you'll get like a line about, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'd like some more info on that. And we get, a, we get her whole speech. We get all the food she prepped. Why do we get all that? Well, in that story, you had two really mighty people. Nabal, her foolish husband, rich, powerful, and David. I mean, on the run, but still, a warrior in his own right, has a little you know, militia with him. But who is the heroic figure? The one that receives praise as being the one really coming from God in 1 Samuel 25. That lowly one, at least in the eyes of the world. The one that would have been honestly treated and considered like property, not even a real person. 
Abigail. She's the hero of that story. God lifts up the lowly. And there are many other stories like that all throughout the book of Samuel that feature this theme. Uh, here's the point as we get into uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17. In a world ruled by ungodly rebellion, fueled by human pride, if you want to just delete that and say the judges, that's what was going on in David's world, and of course, ours too. True greatness is reserved for the lowly in heart. In a world ruled by ungodly rebellion, fueled by human pride, true greatness in the eyes of God is reserved for the lowly of heart. 1 Samuel 16, God's decided to depose the, the worldly rebellious king Saul, the king of the nations, to put his own king in. And so he sends Samuel, the prophet, to, uh, to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, a little town, not a powerful town, a little town. In verse 4, he comes and he, he uh, asks the people and he ends up getting to uh, Jesse's house. And he gets Jesse to get all of his boys together because one of your sons is going to be the great one in Israel, the king. So in verse 6, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and he thought, Whew, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass. Samuel said, The Lord's not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, The Lord's not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons. Can you imagine being there? I imagine whenever we got to number seven, that dude was like, I got y'all. I beat you. None of the rest of you jokers got it. But obviously it's me because all the rest of y'all, no, 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 no. Lucky number seven. And he passes by. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. What a bummer. And so Samuel says, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? Good on Samuel, by the way. God said one of this guy's sons is going to be it, and Samuel knew there's got to be another one because God said no to all these. Are these all your children? And he said, there remains the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. In other words, we didn't even bother calling him in. He just, he's only good for watching sheep, the dumbest animal out there. You know, I mean, we'd send him out there with his sheep. I didn't bring him in. So Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Now, I know at first, like, well, wait a second, I thought we weren't supposed to be mighty. That sounds like mighty stuff, you know, beautiful eyes, handsome appearance. This guy's going to be on the front of a magazine. Well, yeah, in America, where we don't have to go out and fight wars and be scary and intimidating, this is a great kind of king, handsome, beautiful eyes. Do you want somebody like that going out to battle? Our king is going to lead us up against the enemies. Oh, tell me about your king. He has beautiful eyes. <laughs> okay. Woo. You know, that's actually the point. Whenever Goliath in a second is going to see David, he's insulted. This is not meant to make us think, oh, David's so great. It's meant to make us say, uh-oh, this is not the kind of king that you'd want. Right? He's not mighty. He's of the humble. He's a little boy. He's the lowly. Somebody like that couldn't be great, could he? 
And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David's story is a story that illustrates this concept that's so important for us to get a hold of if we're going to be able to do anything with the Lord. Greatness is not for the mighty. Greatness is for the lowly, for the humble. All right, the story of David and Goliath then is just one big uh, illustration. It's many things, but it's at least an illustration of this lesson that David's story teaches us. You remember David was all the mighty things. I mean, he was humongous, uh, both in terms of his height, but also his, his strength and his girth. I mean, all the description of his armor is intimidating just for the armor's sake. I mean, he, he's a tank. But the point is he could carry around all that stuff, and he could utilize all that stuff in battle. King Saul would say to David whenever they would interact, this, not only is this man big and strong and tall, he's, he's been a warrior since his youth. He was experienced. Not only that, the Philistines, of course, uh, we're not just enemies of Israel. Sometimes we think of enemies like, okay, I have this uh, enemy that's, that's equal, right? This was not an equal sort of enemy, a rival in that way. I don't know. I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings with this next thing, but I'm going to go and say this anyways, I think. I imagine there's some of y'all who are Alabama fans here. And Tennessee is your enemy. But, come on, these days, it's not, it's not, they're not really a rival anymore, you know. That's how Israel, Israel was Tennessee. And the Philistines were Alabama. I mean, they were just mowing down the Israelites all the time. Read through the period of the judges and up until now. And even, by the way, through most of 1 Samuel, that's the way it is. They were being dominated, right? And Goliath is one of those. And there he went out every day shouting to the army, send your best. And you know what? If he beats me, we'll serve you. But if, and I'm sure Goliath would say when, I beat him, he'll serve us. And, of course, all the Israelites were intimidated because they didn't believe this. They didn't believe that true greatness was for the lowly and the humble. They believed, like the nations around them, like the nations around us, like we are tempted to believe, that greatness is for the mighty. They had forgotten Hannah's song, or maybe they'd never heard it. And they, they'd missed, messed this up. But, fortunately, David came to teach them and to teach us that victory is found in humility. So David shows up on the scene, and we're just going to kind of go through this story briefly, emphasizing particularly the, the victory of lowliness. David comes, verse 12, uh, and it says that Jesse was old in the days of Saul, and his three older sons, verse 13, had gone into the battle. And David is emphasized as the youngest in verse 14. Verse 15 says, but David went back and forth from Saul. By the way, sorry, 1 Samuel 17, verse 15. But Samuel went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah, this roasted grain, and, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. You hear what, what David's daddy asked him to do? I want you to take this Amazon grocery to the battle line. Take all this stuff to the guys. He was a delivery boy. That's it. 
And also check in on your brothers, ask how they're doing, and then come back and tell me. Wow, what a powerful deed I've been asked to do by my father. Really got upgraded from being the shepherd boy to delivery boy. Verse 20, David doesn't seem to begrudge it one bit. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper, and he took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Important things are going on. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers, to say, hey, see how they're doing. No sword with David, no shield, no spear. He wasn't conscripted into the army. It's just little brother checking on the big people, seeing what's going on with them. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. You can see that the army was really preoccupied with the big things going on, the big things they were doing, drawing up in battle array, army against army. They were preoccupied with the big things that would happen for the people who would win. But where does David's story start here? Carrying some bread and cheese, or would-be bread one day, and cheese. Asking his brothers how they're doing and getting ready to go back. David, the David and Goliath story shows us the victory of humility, which uh, should lead us to, to understand this, that uh, humility calls on us to serve in insignificant ways, maybe I should say seemingly insignificant ways, among the deeds of the big people. David was not doing anything important. Now, of course, when we say David and Goliath, I don't know, maybe it's been a while since you've read If it's been a while since you've read the story, you forgot that he was delivering the grain and the cheese and that he's supposed to check in on his brothers. And maybe even that it says that he got up early in the morning. That same language is used to talk about Abraham and the great sacrifice he made in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, I don't think that's an accident either that that connection is made. What David was doing was a big thing, but it doesn't look very big. Sometimes when we're out here in the world, we want to do big things. I don't think that's bad. After all, it sounds good to do all of God's will, to serve the purpose of God in our generation. Those are big things. And yet, before David, well, on this occasion, when David is going to do the biggest thing that Israel had had done for them, it's an insignificant thing that he starts with. It's a little thing. Among the big people, he understood that humility is true greatness, that doing the little things of service is actually much bigger than the big things that the big people are doing. Uh, what else do we learn about the kind of humility and the kind of uh, maybe characteristics of the humility that brings about victory and true greatness? Uh, so all the people identify, hey, this is what the king will do for you. So, I mean, we're kind of talking tax-free in the king's family. You do what you want. You live where you want. I mean, you just are going to have it made if you will go fight the Philistine and defeat him. So David, verse 26, spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man? Who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should taunt the armies of the living God. So the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the one that looked good on the outside to Samuel, the oldest brother, when he heard David speak to the men, Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with, with who have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Little things, insignificant things. Shepherd boy, what are you doing out here? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down just to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered him the same thing as before. David shows up humbly serving, doing whatever he can. Uh, and the first thing he gets when he's literally just asking, what's the deal here? What's, what's been going on? By the way, he's asking what's going on because that was his job, remember? Go back and bring word to dad. So he's actually doing what he's supposed to do by asking this question. Anyway, uh, his brother does a couple things to him. One, he impugns his character. I know the wickedness in your heart. You just came down here to see a battle. You, know? you don't really care, in other words. He also diminishes David's worth. Hey, where are your few sheep, buddy? What you doing out here with those few sheep? You don't even say sheep, few sheep out there. And then the, the first thing that he says, uh, why have you come down? There's a, there's a criticism and a negativity and just an opposition that Eliab has toward his brother. Toward his brother, his kid brother. That's tough. Have you ever had that happen? Where you try to, you're trying to do something good, you're trying to serve God, you're trying to... And all you catch is criticism for it. And not just criticism, maybe even attacks against your character. People saying things that are bad about you and it's not even true. That's tough. And it's tough that your brother would say that about you. But keep on going in the story. Verse 31, it says, Then the words which David spoke were heard. By the way, the words were, What's going on with this uncircumcised Philistine? Why is he bringing reproach? Reproach is kind of like a shame against Israel. And why is he defying the army of the living God? David's pretty worked up about this thing with the questions he's asking. Anyway, the words which David spoke were heard, and they told him to Saul, and so he sent for David. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go. I love that. Your servant will go. He didn't think he was a big man. He didn't say, Let no man's heart fail. The warrior of warriors is here. The anointed of the Lord has shown up. He doesn't say that. He says, Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Well, then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're just a youth. While he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. Can you picture that, by the way? David's sitting there singing his songs, writing Psalm 23 or whatever, and he, there's a sheep there, and then a bear comes, grabs it, and starts to run away. Now, what would you do if that happened? You'd be like, well, listen, that's, we're going to have some losses here, okay? Like, that's the way it goes. Not David. He's like, oh, no. He grabbed whatever he grabbed. He chased down the bear or the lion. He says, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant 
has killed both the lion and the bear, the great, the big, the powerful things. And this uncircumcised Philistine must be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and delivered me from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You love this uh, section. It's great. Remember, this is that cute kid. I don't know how old he was exactly, but this is somebody that, that Saul looks at and says, you're just a kid. You're too lowly, man. You cannot handle this, right? Uh, there's a second lesson that we need to learn about the victory of humility. Uh, humility that will win victories in this world as we fight for God and with God uh, calls on us to carry on, on unbothered by criticism and doubt. How do you deal with criticism? Whenever somebody says something bad about you, the way you look, what you're able to do, maybe something about your character, how do you deal with that sort of criticism? Sometimes it's pretty crushing. I mean, it's just devastating to hear criticism. Can I tell you, if you're crushed by criticism, when I am crushed by criticism, that's an indication that I've still got a pride problem. Because if you criticize me and say, oh, no, what that indicates is, is that I actually thought I was pretty good. And you cut my legs out from under me. I didn't have a real humble mentality that I'm just a servant and I'm just relying on God. Notice how that's what David says here. We're going to come more to that in just a second. Um, if criticism stops you, stifles you, crushes you, it indicates you probably thought a little too highly of yourself anyways. And or you care too much about what that person thinks about you. It's so great that David's brother comes at him so hard and David's like, it's just a question. What did I do? And then he goes on talking to other guys. He doesn't go back and say, Dad, Eliab was mean to me again. I don't know what the deal is. I never can help it. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just carries on. Humble people are those who just carry on. But I'm not saying that it's wrong to get your feelings hurt ever. But if you're really humble, if I'm going to learn to really be humble, I'm not going to let any kind of criticism or any kind of doubt from others impact me. And that's going to enable me to do things for God. That's the other thing I wanted to go ahead and note right now is that the humility that David had made him boldly confident. Almost in a kind of arrogant way. It would seem that way, right? Don't you think if you were one of Saul's little guards standing there in the tent or wherever they were when they're talking, David's like, listen, whenever a lion or bear came, I just chased him down and attacked him, grabbed him by his beard. And you know what, this Philistine? Same thing. I'm good. Like, who does this guy think he is? That's pretty arrogant. Look, that's the weird part. Real humility kind of looks like arrogance sometimes because you're so supremely confident in God. Notice that's the key, right? We're not just saying, like, if you're arrogant, you can be like, oh, no, actually, I'm humble. You just don't get it. No, that's not the point. Like, maybe you're just arrogant. But David, his confidence was in God and in God alone. That's verse 37 where we just left off. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. So just a second ago, he's talking about, I grabbed the lion's beard and I slew him and all this stuff. He's saying, God is the one who did that. God is the one who enabled me. He was boldly, that's why he carried on unbothered by the criticism. That's why whatever little deed it was, hey, I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing it to serve God's purpose in my generation. So you know what? I'm going to do it. Even the little things that nobody else thinks are important. And when I'm trying to do something and somebody criticizes me, I'm just going to carry on. And whenever somebody says, I don't think you can do it, I'm going to say, yeah, you don't know. I can. I really can. 
because of what God has done for me. And this bold confidence is to the nth degree whenever David goes to meet Goliath. Uh, Saul tries to gear David up. He tries to make him confident in armor. David puts it on, and, you know, there's all the little pictures in kids' Bibles where it's, like, all clunky. I don't know what it was, really. But whatever it was, David says, I can't use this. I've never tested it. I love that. David said, I can go because I have tested the Lord out. And he's proven himself reliable. I'm confident in him. I'm not confident in your armor and sword and spear and whatnot, Saul. But I am confident in the Lord. So he goes, and he scoops up uh, five smooth stones from the brook, puts them in his little bag. He's got his sling, and he goes out to meet the Philistine. Uh, Verse 40, it also says uh, he took his stick in his hand. All right, so we got a stick, we got sling, we got a few rocks, and the kid goes out to meet the giant. Verse 41, then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. Not only is it uh, Saul, uh, excuse me, Goliath, but he's got his equipment manager there on, on the battlefield with him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Remember, cute kid, not intimidating, not great and mighty, humble and lowly. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? It's almost like he actually saw the stick in David's hand. And it's like, are you serious? Perhaps he also is saying, I'm going to treat you like a dog treats a stick. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. David came out there with some insignificant tools right in front of one of the big people, Goliath. Um, he, he seems unbothered, as we're going to see, by the criticism and doubt. And he's going to be supremely confident in God. David said to the Philistine, okay, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, Yahweh will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I'll give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord doesn't deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I love how David takes Goliath's trash talk and just spins it right back to him. Yeah, okay. You say that I shouldn't come out with a stick? You're coming out with a sword, spear, and javelin. Same thing. And you think you're going to throw my body to the birds? I don't think so. And I'll do you one better. Not only am I going to chop your head off, I'm going to give the the bodies of all your army to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David. David did just like he did with that lion and the bear. He ran quickly, it says. It doesn't say that David approached. That would have been enough. Wow, that's pretty cool. This kid, like, approached that he wasn't intimidated. It's not just that. It says that he ran, but it doesn't say that he ran. It says that he ran quickly. He was ready to get it going. 
he ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And I love verse 49 because it says he ran quickly. And then it's almost like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. I, need, I do need something. And so he reaches into his bag and took from the stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. The thing that, the mighty powerful thing that the Philistine thought he was going to use ended up being the thing that ended it all for him. Whenever you trust in the mighty things of this world, it'll only come back to haunt you. But if you learn to be boldly confident in God, there's victory found in that kind of humility. I love that. And notice once again, we know David was not being arrogant in some sort of uh, uh, humanistic pride or whatever because he's always talking about God. Saul says, what's going on? Well, listen, God did it last time. He'll do it again. uh, The Philistine says all this stuff and he says, listen, I'm going to show you and I'm going to show everybody that there's a God in Israel. And the battle belongs to him, not to any of us. David doesn't even say it's going to be his. I mean, sure, he says he's going to do this stuff, but it's because of God himself. If you want to have the kind of humility that will bring about victory over sin and death and make you rise up above this world, to be raised up by God like David, to have a heart like David's, we've got to learn to have that kind of confidence. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your money. Stop trusting in whatever. Be boldly confident in the Lord alone. Here's the last thing I want to point out before we uh, kind of wrap this up. David's uh, humility is expressed in that he wasn't fighting for himself. He wasn't fighting for himself. All throughout this, you notice what he was concerned about? Remember whenever he showed up and they were telling him about the battle? What does he say? Who is this Philistine that's bringing reproach against Israel? Israel. He's concerned for his people. But the reason he's concerned for his people, why? He says, this man is defying the armies of the living God. Not King Saul, not, I mean, David was the, the anointed uh, king who would be taken. It wasn't, my army's being, no, no. And whenever he goes up against Goliath, that's what he's, I want everybody to know that there is a God in Israel and that the battle belongs to him. That's what David was fighting for. He was fighting for God's honor and for the good of the people. That's what it was all about. That's humility where you're not concerned what people think about you on the job or in school or when you put on clothes or when you open your mouth or when you use your money or whatever it is. You're not concerned about what people think about you. As a matter of fact, you'd prefer people to not think much of you at all, but to merely think about God. And in their thinking about God and being oriented toward God, as you bring them to their Savior, it's for their good and it's for His honor and glory. That's what David fought for. You know, David could have turned around and been like, see, all you guys were too scared. Look what you could have done. What's wrong with you? He doesn't do that. The text goes on to talk about how all the army is launched by this victory, by this little kid, this little boy king that nobody saw as a king. He was just a cute kid who needed to go back with the sheep. But the best thing he could do is deliver some grain and cheese. But he launched a victory for them. They, I mean, smoked the Philistines. They go and they take them down because David was a man of a humble heart. He was one of the lowly. And that's the one that God used to exalt not only David, but all the people. And of course, this is seen most clearly in Jesus, this concept that we've laid out, that in a world ruled by ungodly rebellion, fueled by human pride, true greatness is reserved for the lowly in heart. I want to make one brief application 
and then uh, and then it's going to be 11 o'clock, maybe in 30 seconds. Give me 90 seconds. It'll be 11.01 when we get done. Um, we got to stop caring about the mighty things in the world, y'all. I think I might say, yes, we need to be humble when it comes to being a Christian and like the exclusively Christian things, whatever that even means. We need to be humble, lowly, all that sort of stuff. But you know, out on the job, you're going to have to kind of throw your weight around. You've got to make your voice heard. You've got to let people know that you're there. Look, I'm not saying it's wrong to ever be assertive, and there's all kinds of nuances to all these kind of things, but I've got to tell you, every day when you go on the job, this concept must rule your choices. Uh, in terms of finding security out in the world, this has to rule your perspective. You're not going to be secure by having friends that are popular or attractive or whatever. You're going to be secure in God when you make yourself low. Oh, you're not going to make yourself secure with that arrogant politician who blusters on about whatever he or she is blustering on about, telling you how they're so smart and so great and they're going to fix everything and they're the best and the other is the worst. And you say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to vote for that person. That's going to be the person I trust in. Shame on us if we do that. I'm not saying it's wrong to vote necessarily or anything like that. What I'm telling you is we don't go up and down with what goes on in the politics of this world because you know what? All the politics of this world are in rebellion against God and are fueled by human pride. Even the ones that say they're fighting for us, they're really not. And we believe that greatness is not for the mighty. Greatness is for the lowly. Don't pursue a bunch of money. Don't, you, know, you get the point, right? This has to permeate everything about our lives. Because the problem is, if we look at the world and don't see the world with this truth guiding us, so we don't see David there before Goliath and see that this is the way God works throughout all the world, we're going to be drawn to the nations, just like Israel was. And then we, God's people, will be just like God's people back in the period of the judges who forgot this supremely important thing. And whenever it's hard for you to believe this and it's hard for you to carry on with humility, it's hard for you to admire the humble more than the mighty in the world, go back to the cross. There's nothing greater than the cross of Jesus Christ to teach us that humility is the true path to greatness. Thanks for your good participation. I'm kind of sorry for us going... Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation, or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's Word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.